From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father Brian Mullady is in the house ready to answer your questions. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number uh, is one 205 2712985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1 205 271 2985 and you can always send us an email that email address is openline at ewtn.com I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson, handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window. It might find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, the aforementioned, Father Brian Mullady. How are you? Fine. How about yourself? Feeling very courageous, Father. Very courageous today. Good. What's needed is courage. (laughs) So you're going to talk a little bit about that today. Yes. Well, with all the things going on in the world, both uh, politically and religiously, I thought it would be a, a fitting thing to discuss at this moment the nature and importance of courage and what it actually is. As you know, courage is one of the four cardinal virtues. The term cardinal there doesn't refer to a cardinal with a red hat, someone who elects the Pope, but or a bird. Instead, the word cardinal there comes from a Latin word for hinge, cardo. And these are the virtues around which our moral life hinges. So in every power of our soul, we have to have a virtuous formation in order to have a complete human action, which really will perfect us and our powers. So in the intellect, we have prudence. In the will, we have justice. In the passions that have to do with pleasure and pain, and this would be passions that are involved in the sexuality, too, and things like that. We need the virtue of temperance. But then there's these the virtues that have to do with how to feel uh, anger and how to persevere in the face of those things which threaten us morally, and that's the virtue of courage. Uh, The Catechism of the Catholic Church talks about courage, and um, it's not very long, but it's very interesting, especially given today's climate. And in the Catechism, 
it states this about courage, which they also call fortitude. Fortitude is the moral virtue. In other words, it has with willing correctly, loving correctly, that ensures firmness in difficulties and constancy in the pursuit of good. It strengthens the resolve to resist temptations and to overcome obstacles in the moral life. The virtue of fortitude enables one to conquer fear, even fear of death, and to face trials and persecutions. It disposes one even to renounce and sacrifices life in defense of a just cause. What we need today is courage. Because in our world today, we have many threats to the truth. And we have theoretical threats to the truth where people will give up well, what they think to be true or believe to be true just for the sake of getting ahead or so people won't think badly of them. And then we have actual physical threats or moral threats of the truth that have to do especially with uh, your livelihood, for example, your job, your salary, and then finally, of course, the ultimate threat is the one to our lives where we're threatened with martyrdom. Now, in the last 200 years, for various reasons, because the life of good has seemed elusive to us, or we haven't emphasized strength of character, and that's especially true, though not exclusively true, of men, we in the Western world have had a great lack of courage. A bunch of authors, even uh, secular authors, have stated that the biggest assault today in the family is on the whole institution of fatherhood. And it's where the father teaches us what it is to persevere even in the face of fear. If a child sees that when their parent, their father, goes out to work, that he can't be diminished or intimidated by the difficulties of life, then he reaches the conclusion that the world can't be so bad after all, and that he can also go out and pursue his livelihood despite the threats done to him. And yet today, at least in the West, we have people who go to their safe space with their teddy bear when they're an adult to try to deal with a bad grade. Now, this is ridiculous, <laughs> number one. Number two, for many, many years, I've just been reading a bunch of histories of battles and things like that, the human spirit was very powerful. I was just reading the history um, of a naval officer, a Marine, who was marooned on Guam during the Second World War and had to hide out from the Japanese. The Guamanians were very, very good to him. 
But imagine the courage that took for years for him on that small island to seek to elude capture. He was thinking of surrendering one day, and one of the Guamanian women said, don't do that because you're our only hope that eventually the Americans will return. If you go, the people of this island will give up that hope and they will start collaborating because they need a sign. Well, a similar thing is true in our religion. Our religion today is assaulted from many different aspects. It's assaulted from the aspect of marriage, you know, of the um, same-sex marriage, of single families. Our concepts of the truth are constantly assaulted, sometimes even by church schools, or even sometimes by members of the hierarchy. You know, we have to remember that not everybody in the hierarchy was always an Orthodox Catholic. In fact, the first great heretic, one of them was Nestorius, and he was the Patriarch of Constantinople, which is a major bishop in the Eastern Church. So this demonstrates that even our hierarchy is not immune from, well, error. <laughs> or heresy. And it's very necessary for us today to realize that our religion is not easy. I remember Cardinal Ratzinger said that the church would be greatly reduced as to true believers or not. And it's necessary because we're the hope of the world. For example, in China, the church has been greatly assaulted because even church authorities in Rome have permitted a whole um, government-sponsored hierarchy, which doesn't necessarily teach anything remotely connected to Christianity. I remember I read uh, one of uh, the Catholic Chinese who went to church, and they discovered the church had been turned into a shrine for the president. And instead of Bible, they had his sayings in his life. We have to resist this. We can only do it with prayer, and we can only do it by relying on the Lord. So our help is in the name of the Lord. May heaven, heaven and, and earth. earth. 833-288-3986 is our toll-free number. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hot off the presses for October from EWTN Publishing, a blue-collar answer to Protestantism. Catholic questions Protestants can't answer by our good friend John Martinoni. Um, he highlights the flaws in Protestant teaching using common sense with simple, clear-cut explanations. John lays out the reasons why Protestantism as a whole and in its individual parts is illogical and lacking in both common sense and biblical sense. 
You'll find concise, candid, power-packed arguments from Scripture, history, and just plain rational thinking, along with 30 questions to ask Protestants about what they believe and why. A blue-collar answer to Protestantism. Catholic questions Protestants can answer. It's available at EWTN's religious catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Wide open phone lines for you today at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Ellie is watching us on Facebook Live today, Father, and she wants to know, why did Jesus tell the apostles not to go east to spread the gospel? Uh, I think I've heard this question before. I don't have any idea what these people are referring to. Because Christ is very clear when he goes to heaven, go and teach all nations. Well, that was certainly in the East. Uh, I don't quite understand what scripture passage they're referring to, because I've never heard uh, that idea before. Now, it's true, I'm a Catholic, and don't know every instantaneous verse of scripture, chapter and verse. But I've never heard that he forbid them to go east to preach. In fact, he sent them to the whole human race. And you can see that also in Pentecost, because it's the whole human race that comes to Jerusalem to worship Pentecost. So Kat wants to know, why doesn't the church fund more scientific investigations of miracles in the church so that perhaps more atheists would come to believe in God? Well, I think there's several reasons for this. The first is, our faith isn't supposed to depend on miracles. Remember, Jesus says uh, it's an evil generation who seeks a sign. Now, it's true. He himself did miracles, and the apostles did miracles. But that was to underline their teaching. And in fact, as you know, one of the authenticity, uh, the criteria or judgment basis for judgment for the authenticity of a miracle has to do with what it teaches and if it teaches wrong things it's not real also the church has always been very nervous about what we would call the spiritual church versus the hierarchical church because it was an ancient another ancient christian heresy called gnosticism that taught a hidden knowledge of god that nobody knew, not even the hierarchy, and nobody could judge it. Well, Christ says very plainly for Pilate and before the high priest in his trial, why don't you ask the people that heard me? I taught all things openly. The miracles are an attempt to basically to demonstrate the fact that his teaching is true. And that's what we have to emphasize, the catechism, not miracles. And also, the very fact or definition of a miracle is it's not exactly open to scientific investigation. You remember in the film about Bernadette, Our Lady of Lourdes, they have several long discussions about this. And they asked the doctor if science could give an explanation, and he said no. And, and they said, well, are you, maybe you're not a good scientist. He says, I'm a member of the French Academy, for heaven's sake. And I published it to several journals. So I'm not a gullible person who ignorantly believes that something could be a miracle. 
And then they say, well, what about faith? Well, the bishops haven't spoken on it. So then the imperial prosecutor, who's very anti-Catholic, says, well, science doesn't have an explanation of faith. So what's the explanation anyway? And he says, well, you're a child most blessed by God. And at the beginning of that particular film, they have a quotation from St. Hillary, when they still had intelligent movies, that says, for those with faith, no explanation is necessary. For those without faith, no explanation is possible. And it, it wouldn't make any difference if he proved it scientific. If you were scientifically, you don't believe in it anymore. So people who don't accept it, they wouldn't necessarily accept it if you showed them that you thought this had to be true. Because as you know, regarding science, too, and causality in science, there's lots of people with lots of disagreements about it. I mean, just just look at Dr. Fauci. I am science. Well, I don't know. A lot of people don't seem to think science is very, you know, edifying here and probably not true in some ways. So we had to be very careful about this. That's why the church has spent a lot of time on it. To the phones we go. First up today is Thomas. He's a first-time caller in Grand Rapids, Michigan, listening on the EWTN app. Thomas, you are on with Father Brian Milady. Thank you very much. Hello, Father. Thank you for your service. Uh, Father, I have a question that's kind of plagued me, and I've seen it through different areas, uh, different platforms, that if a person passes on, with uh, leads an indigenous life, uh, and passes on with grave sin. And the Lord, through the right prayer or the right intercession, spares him at the last second, and he ends up in purgatory at the lowest, lowest level. Now, I have read different areas, different times, that uh, this any, any prayers intercessory for this person will be held off by our Lord or or the Blessed Mother or whatever until... Until that they deem necessary to distribute them to him, otherwise they're given to a relative or something like that. And and I don't I don't know how our the mercy of our Lord could could do that. But I've read it different areas. Uh, well, I'm kind of confused. Do you mean before death or after death? I mean, after death, when he goes to purgatory, he dies in grave sin. The, the Lord doesn't, no, he doesn't die in grave sin. You can't go to purgatory if you've got grave sin. The only place you can go is hell. He was a great sinner who repented at the last moment before he's, he died. And that repentance is always accepted. And the Lord certainly, I don't know where you read this or where you heard it, but the Lord certainly does not hold up his mercy till some future time, whatever that may be in purgatory. He immediately gives it because the person's worthy of heaven, they just haven't gotten there yet. And remember, I always tell people, return to the basics. Why did God make me? The second question in the Baltimore Catechism. God made me to show forth his goodness and to make me happy with him in heaven. He would hardly withhold his mercy and show forth his goodness at the same time. And 
encourage this person to be happy with him in heaven. He wants people to be in heaven. He does not create us to condemn us or make us feel bad. Uh, we certainly don't have to go through a uh, purgation ritual, which is positive or, or active, after our death. All our purgation is passive. We can't do anything because we don't have a body, as far as moral purgation is concerned. While we're on earth, we can do good works. We can offer ourselves for humanity. We can do, you know, suffer a person who hates us, all those things. But once we die, we can't do any of that stuff anymore. So I don't have any idea who wrote and said that God withholds somehow the prayers we make for the dead. And Mary doesn't have anything to do with it. She can't withhold prayers or not withhold prayers. Only Christ can. But uh, he never withholds these prayers. So I would say that whoever told you this was wrong when it came to the mercy of God and what it was about. So, Thomas, your instincts were correct. Does that help? Beautiful job. Thank you. You're very welcome. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN. That is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Here's a question from Otto, uh, Father, and this is something that that I think hangs up uh, a lot of our non-Christian uh, brothers and sisters. He says, how can I understand the seemingly wrath-filled God of the Old Testament and the merciful Jesus of the New Testament? Oh, okay. Well, this is a fairly easy question to answer. <clears throat> because remember, the Old Testament cures the hand and what the hand does. But in itself, it doesn't cure the heart. So the people know what the truth is, as opposed to pagans, who have a lot of ignorance about it. They're given the law, they're given the sacrifices, they're given the temple, all those things, but they're not given grace by itself. Some may have grace, there are saints in the Old Testament, but they're few and far between. (laughs) And so, it's not a matter of God changing or being wrathful to good. It's a matter of our being held to a certain standard that we can't live easily in the Old Testament, that because we then receive grace, we're much more able to live in the New Testament. Uh, that's why Christ says, I've always been very enticed by that verse, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Well, the yoke, therefore, of course, stands for the law, the Old Testament law. Uh, I can assure you the people didn't find it easy. <laughs> and the reason was because they didn't have love. So remember, the Old Testament is a preparation for the new. As I say, it restrains the hand, but it was not restrain the heart. And as a result, there are people that can live the observances of the old law, but they don't live it from the proper motivations And so all they do is find the law burdensome to them. Whereas because we have received grace, we should find the law much lighter 
and much less burdensome than people in the Old Testament did. We should want to do the will of God because we love him and we know we're going to be with him forever. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our good friends at Salt and Light Radio in Idaho need to hear from you next week. They're airing their 2023 Fall Pledge Drive next Wednesday through Friday. So if you're listening in Boise or Twin Falls, Caldwell, Bloomington, anywhere in the listening area, please be sure to take care of these good folks. And no matter where you're listening, please support your local EWTN Catholic radio station. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Next up is Connie. She is a first-time caller in Columbus, Ohio, listening on St. Gabriel Radio. Connie, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi. I wanted to know why Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man instead of the Son of God. Oh, yes, that's a famous, famous uh, scriptural difficulty. Uh, the term son of man is a very loaded term when it comes to the Jews. And it basically means, remember, he's not only God, but he's also man. So it is expressing uh, his humanity and his humanity, which is sacred, uh, as a po- as a vehicle or tool for us to qu- understand more about his divinity. However, because it's such a strange term, and it requires a good deal of scriptural explanation, especially regarding the Old Testament, in the period that Christ lived. It's always been very controversial what it could possibly mean, really. No one knows, strictly speaking, um, though they have some ideas about what this might be referring to. But uh, it's not a denial of his divinity. He is the Son of God. But he's also, uh, especially uh, engraced, person who has a human nature, not, not a human person, that's especially um, a sign of what it means to experience the perfection of our lives in grace. God bless you, Connie. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Lisa would like to know, how did the Church develop the concept of original sin? Well, the concept of original sin, first of all, comes, as you know, from Genesis. The Church didn't develop it. It's a part of Revelation. 
However, its full explanation is something that took place over time. And the fact of the existence of original sin has to do with people who may not have, you know, they didn't have the use of their faculties uh, when they died as babies. But they uh, still were considered to have, have to suffer not moral punishments. They don't, they don't go to hell, as you know. They don't get, or whatever you want to call it, burned with the fire or whatever with the devil. But on the other hand, they don't go to heaven either. So if their only thing is original sin, it comes from the practice of infant baptism. Because of the very fact that the community felt there was something that the child needed to be saved from that was not just personal sins that were committed after they reached the age of reason, and in fact is the source of all of our sin. Uh, remember, original sin is a very weird concept. The Catechism says it's not an act, it's a state. By which they mean we use the term original sin to refer to someone who's born into the world without grace. Now why is this a sin? Because God has destined us for himself. God made me to show forth his goodness and made me happy with him in heaven. If I'm in the state of original sin, I can't go to heaven. On the other hand, if I never commit any personal sins, I don't believe to get, I don't to get consigned to hell. So I'm kind of in limbo between the two. And in fact, that's what we use to turn, return, to call the state the state of limbo. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288. 3986. Brandon is in Tulsa, Oklahoma, listening on Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Brandon, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, Father. Uh, so, I have a question for you. I, mean, I don't really know how to, how to phrase the question. Uh, Protestants believe in only Scripture, and the Catholics believe in Scripture and tradition. So, I was trying to go back and and look at history as far as when the first Bible was ever created uh, in regards to the New Testament, because if you look at at Acts, the book of Acts, they were, you know, going on missions and and preaching at at different churches that they started up and writing, you know, writing letters. They didn't have, you know, they didn't have the Internet, so they couldn't instantaneously send a message to, you know, the new churches, they had to write letters, they had to travel, they had to do all this. So they they were just putting together the New Testament. I mean, how long after Jesus ascended into heaven, how long did it take for them to have the first written Bible, you know? <laughs> I, guess, I guess that's my question. Yeah, you know, this whole Bible tradition thing, scripture tradition thing, 
in my opinion, is ridiculous also. I mean, how can you, how can you have the Bible as the source of your doctor when there isn't the Bible? And the Bible basically developed over several, maybe 50 or 60 years. And what did it develop in relation to and what was it judged by? Because, you know, there are a lot of books that claim to be inspired by God. The Epistle of James comes to mind, which are not, at least not, not completely. And the church itself determined this after a long examination by what was taught there. Now, therefore, what came first, obviously, was preaching. You were saying that they developed the written scripture from the preaching. Well, obviously, the preaching came first, and that's tradition. So the word of God as written is scripture. The word of God as spoken is tradition. And what was the standard they used in order to determine that certain things were inspired by God and certain weren't, by whether they corresponded to the word of God as spoken. And this is seen in the at least two books of the Bible, their origin. The origin of Luke is the preaching of St. Paul, because Luke was the companion of St. Paul. And in a sense, the origin of Matthew also was the testimony of the community. You know, Matthew did research. Even he was Jewish, he was with the Jewish mission. And then, of course, Mark, as you remember, is Peter's scribe. And so the gospel, according to St. Mark, is reflected in Peter's experiences of what Christ said and Christ, what Christ did. So obviously the preaching came first and the written word came second. Now, which is more important, no one knows when it comes to defining truth. But they're equally important because they feed off of each other. So it's a, the, the Protestants always reverse the question and say, well, why should there be any tradition Scripture is sufficient. But they don't ask the question correctly. If Scripture comes from tradition, then tradition had to be there already. And so we need to be aware of um, assuming that these things were all present. I mean, some people act like they had the King James Version drop out of heaven, you know, in, uh, what, 50 A.D.? And the church just judged from that for years until the evil Roman church decided to implement this thing called tradition, papal teachings and things like that. But then Martin Luther rediscovered that scripture was the only thing, really. Well, that doesn't make any sense. And even for, if you examine it in relation to what the Bible says about its own origin, it doesn't make any sense. So you need to try to think about, just in common sense, what was the first thing that came and the second thing. Both are talking about the same person, and therefore they shouldn't disagree. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Uh, Lou wants to Lou wants to know if doing laundry on Sunday is sinful. No. 
you're running a laundromat and making millions of dollars on Sunday, that would be sinful. But if you're doing your own personal laundry so you don't stink during the week, uh, no, uh -uh, that's necessary. Remember, you've got to remember, we were always taught what is condemned in the Third Commandment is unnecessary. Certainly, luxury or clothes is necessary. Servile, that's to say, the kind of work that would be done by a laborer or, or even a corporate executive, um, but still something that um, has a utilitarian motive work. So that's the work that's condemned. So we should be squeezing out that extra buck on Sunday. Well, it'd probably be more than a buck, yes. <laughs> and I don't know, when I was a teenager, I worked for North American Aviation, and we were required to work on Sunday and keep our job. And so I thought about this, you know, I was very troubled about this for a long time. But, you know, and then I was told by the priest, basically, well, you know, if the guy tells you you're going to lose your job if you don't work on Sunday, then you have to work on Sunday. But you shouldn't if that's not a condition. So, Ralph would like to know, why did Jesus use bread and wine instead of something else? Well, first of all, you'll have to ask Christ. <laughs> I mean, uh, secondly, of course, the bread... Its relationship is to the manna, you know, the new manna, because um, manna has the characteristics of bread, and also the Passover supper, where they used unleavened bread, and the wine the same, the Passover supper. So a lot of it comes out of the Jewish tradition of the Passover supper, and uh, what the things that they used were... Also, for most of the world, not all the world, it's true. That's why there's been certain dispensations given, especially in Muslim countries. Bread and wine from grapes can be attained fairly easily. And so it's a more common element. And also it perfectly symbolizes, you know, where you have the diversity of the grapes or diversity of the wheat grains that come together and are unified. So you have diversity and unity. I want to invite you to check out Blessed to Play this Sunday afternoon at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time. This week's guest is Miriam Diaz-Gilbert, who is an ultra runner. She's run races over 100 miles long. Ron Meyer talks with Miriam about how her Catholic faith and running are integrated in her quest to pursue incredible feats of endurance. No thank you. That's blessed to play this Sunday afternoon at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Miriam is a better person than me. <laughs> I cannot run 100 miles. <laughs> um, I can't even run one at this point. <laughs> Next up is Nina. She's in Tulsa, Oklahoma, listening on Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Nina, you're on with Father Brian Mullady. Hello. What can we do for you today? I have a question that's kind of new, but it's starting to be new, that uh, people are saying that 
Halloween is the devil. Now, I know as a kid, I dressed up like witches oh, and monsters. Yeah. And, and, and I, I posted something, a book I wrote about for kids for Halloween. It was nonsense stuff. And I'm, they're telling me I'm satanic for doing it. Well, it's time for the Halloween questions again. Yes, I forgot that was coming up. Look. It's, um, it's not new, first of all. <laughs> no, Halloween is a harvest festival. It's based on the bringing in of the harvest, obviously, during autumn. And um, coupled with this is the idea of nature and, the, you know, the supposedly pixies and fairies and all those um, little creatures that no one knows existed exactly, but we bring in. Also, in Christianity, it took on a new um, uh, meaning because it's the day before All Saints Day. And so people dressed up in costumes that were supposed to symbolize their favorite saint. And they went, we call it trick-or-treating, but they went begging from door to door. And that was supposed to represent the begging, uh, the Christians, you know, who were supposed to beg their bread when they went from door to door. So it's proper usage is as a preparation for All Saints Day. Now, I don't know what you wrote about in this book, but... Um, it's uh, it's just a minor celebration, you know, to try to have now children have a good time during the harvest and connect it with Christianity. Thank you, Nina. We appreciate that call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Brent has a question I have not seen before. If all sins are forgiven in confession, will they be brought back up again in purgatory? No. Uh, what will happen is that at the end of the world, when the Lord judges us publicly before the assembled creation, our good acts and our evil acts will be known by all. Now, when it comes to evil acts, if I've converted, you know, my life through confession and gotten grace, those evil acts will be a sign of the power of grace. Now, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. If they're uh, the sign of our refusal to accept grace is in hell, the fact that they're known by the whole creation will add to our suffering. But, uh, no. Regarding your personal individual sins, once they're forgiven, we should move on to the good that we can do. And I am emphasizing still again that God did not condemn the create the world and condemn the world. In other words, we're not uh, supposed to sit and Think about our sins over and over and over again. The reason the Lord gives us a confession is because then we can be free from thinking about our sins and to go on to more readily do the good which uh, 
grace and virtue allow for us. Kent is curious as to why God would create the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden if Adam and Eve were not meant to eat from it. Well, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is uh, a metaphor for choice. The fact that if you're saved, you participated by choosing it, and if you're damned, the same thing is true. So you may as well say, well, God would have to create us without a free will. He did not, of course, doesn't want us to commit evil. He didn't create free will that we would commit evil. But the fact that he created free will gave us the ability to do evil. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Sort of on a related topic, Kyle wants to know if suffering is required in order to attain heaven, and if so, how could God be loving and require that you suffer? The same reason your father can be loving and punish you, so that you'll be better. Um, The suffering that we experience, and we all have our variations on this, and I'm speaking more of spiritual suffering, that is to say, of asceticism, you know, criticizing our own egotism, which I think causes a lot of people to suffer. It's very difficult for us to admit that we have an ego. Not so hard for us to admit everybody else does, but very difficult for us to admit that we have an ego. And the very fact that we do this can cause us pain, and but it's a salutary pain, the same as would happen if you were being healed from a disease and the infection resisted being killed. Joanne is up next. She is in Gaylord, Michigan, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Joanne is a native of Birmingham, Alabama. I'd want to thank you for our bishop, first of all. And and what is your question today? Okay, my question is, uh, man is made to the image and likeness of God. And that I believe that, but I heard on one of my programs that I listened to that God has no form, which I never heard that before. Well, he doesn't have a physical form, obviously, because he doesn't have a body. Um, being in the image of likeness of God has nothing to do with physical form. He also isn't limited. So he wouldn't have the, um, what Greeks would call the form of a certain kind of being as opposed to another. Let's say, and it doesn't have to be a a physical form again. It can be a flower, it can be a tree, it can be your intelligence, all those things. God doesn't have a form like that because he's not limited by anything. He's unlimited Um, and so he's not a thing, he's all. So that's the the point. 833-288-EWTN, that is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Paul would like to know, did the father beget the son through knowledge? Well, it's often attributed to knowledge, 
because the Son is called the perfect image of the Father. And Christ proceeds, the Father, Son proceeds from the Father by the manner of knowledge. But it is, but all three of the pieces of the Trinity are knowing. All three of the persons of the Trinity are loving. But to help us understand the difference between the persons, we attribute one way of proceeding to one and another way of proceeding to another. And uh, Janet, in the interest of time, I'm going to ask your question for you because we're just about at the end of the program. But she wonders something I think a lot of people are probably wondering nowadays. She points out that in Deuteronomy and Isaiah and other places in the Old Testament, it's prophesied that God will protect Israel to the end of the world. So they're wondering how the recent events could happen. Mm. Well, I'd have to see those texts because it's true that God will bring Israel to resolution. But St. Paul interprets that as the conversion to Christ. And that's how God protects Israel. Not in some sort of physical protection. Now, it may have meant that in the Old Testament, because the people in the Old Testament had a tendency to judge things materially. But when it comes to the deeper point, the protection of God for Israel is a spiritual protection that their quest for the Messiah, it will eventually bear fruit. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Milady, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to another edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Be sure to check us out tomorrow, same time, 3 p.m. Eastern time, for EWTN's Open Line Friday. We'll be joined by our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. So get your theology questions queued up and ready to go. Until we get together tomorrow with Colin, have a great evening and God bless. Oh,